The following audio is from First Baptist Church of Conyers. More information about First Baptist Conyers is available at firstconyers.com. Amen. I want to ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Second Chronicles chapter 14. Now, some of you may have to look in your index to find where that book is located. Uh, the last couple of months, I've been having to do some project in school through the books of First and Second Chronicles, and I, to my shame, I realize that we don't concentrate enough of our time in the narrative stories of the Old Testament because God has placed them there, not just a narrative of history of the nation of Israel, but so that we today can learn and apply the truths and the principles through these Old Testament saints that had walked before us and had walked with God. And we're going to look at one of those this morning in chapter 14 of Second Chronicles. I've entitled today's message of crying out to our God. And we're going to see that in just a minute. But just a little backdrop on this period of time in Second Chronicles, we, we realize and, and recognize that the nation of Israel was a divided kingdom at this time. You had King David and Solomon and, and the others, and, and the kingdom was united as one kingdom. And then you might use the term that civil war kind of broke out in all of the land, and there was a northern kingdom and there was a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was made up of 10 tribes, the tribes of Judah, and then then the southern kingdom, which is referred to as Judah, had two tribes of the tribes of Israel, and that was Judah and Benjamin that were there. And so the kingdom is divided at this time, and kind of the setting that's taking place when uh, Second Chronicles chapter 14 under King Asa is that there had just been a, a huge battle and we might call it a civil war that had taken place between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And in this time in Israel, there was continual conflict. Uh, you never knew what day one kingdom might attack the other kingdom. And in each of these, this northern kingdom and southern kingdom, there were about 20 kings in each kingdom that reigned throughout that time. Now, one thing we need to know is that in the northern kingdom, none of the kings that were over the northern kingdom were good kings. They were all evil kings, and none of them did right in the sight of God. And so it was natural that if they were living that way, they had built idols and, and all kinds of idolatrous worship. And if they were living that way, then the people were living that way as well. But in the southern kingdom, there were about four kings that we might consider out of 20 kings that were good kings. There were about four other kings that were kind of moderate. They did both good and evil, but there are only four kings that, that did good. And so the setting here is when King Asa came to the throne. And King Asa was the third in succession from Solomon uh, in, in this line of family. And all of them did evil in the sight of God, maybe except for Solomon. But the scriptures tell us that Solomon had a what? Had, had a half heart for God. And so we see it kind of passed down from one king to the next in these generations. And so we pick up in verse 1. Abijah, that was the father of Asa, slept with his fathers. In other words, he died in his kingship. He dies, and they buried him in the city of David. 
And Asa, his son, reigned in his place. And then there's a little distinctive line that's placed here in verse 1. He says, in his days, the land had rest for 10 years. Now, this was an extreme anomaly that the land would have rest under King Asa's rule and reign. Now, we might ask the question, why is it that all of a sudden, where the land had been in constant turmoil and conflict between the northern and southern kingdom, Asa comes on the scene, and now for 10 years, there's rest. There's a ceasing of conflict. There, the tension was probably still there, but there were no wars, there were no battles. But the answer we find is in, is in verse 2 where it says this, And Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. There's a principle here for you and I. That when, there is, when, when we are living our lives and doing good and right in God's eyes, there is rest. Now, let me ask you this question. How many of you have ever struggled with a besetting sin? Uh, two, two honest people in the room. And it can be a besetting sin that's an action. It can be an attitude. It can be a heart motive. It can, it can be a mental thing where we, we know that we're not doing good and living right. I don't know about you, but when I'm in those seasons in my Christian life, there is no rest in my heart. There's no rest in my mind. There's no rest in my emotions. And the issue there is that I am not living good and right in the eyes of God. Now, we can often do good things, but doing good things is not always the right thing. Let me say that again. We can do good things, but doing good things is not always the right thing. Sometimes we get into the mode in our Christian life that we seem to try to live a good life to do good things rather than doing good things that are right. You say, J-Mo, how can that be? I, I thought good things are always good to do. Well, it's better than doing bad things, I'll tell you that. But there is a qualifying factor within Scripture that differentiates that we are doing good things or we're doing good things the right way. And it has everything to do with heart, has everything to do with motive. You see, oftentimes you and I can do good things so that we might be the one that gets recognition for the good things that we do. Sometimes we can do good things, but our, our motives are so that you and I might get the glory rather than God getting the glory as we do those good things with the right heart and a right motive and a right attitude. The Apostle Paul speaks of these things in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and he tells us, I'm going to paraphrase the verses, he says, you know, we could build upon a foundation of, of gold and silver and precious metals, or we can build upon a foundation of wood, hay, and stubble. But in that day, those things will be judged. That day is when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, and he judges those things that we do here on this earth. You see, those things that are done with a wrong motive, the things that are done maybe out of just religious fervor, those things are going to be like wood, hay, and stubble, and they're going to burn up and be consumed, and we will lose the reward that God wants to give to us on that day. 
You see, we can do good things, but with the wrong motive. There's a difference between doing good things and right. Jesus dealt with this in his day. You remember those guys, the Pharisees? Jesus tells the story of how the Pharisees, they did a good thing by praying. Is it good to pray? But it says you pray on the street corners in a loud voice so that everybody can hear you praying. And they say, my, what a good Pharisee. So slap a big P on me, right? We can give of our offerings and our alms with a wrong attitude. Remember the story of the widow and the widow's mites where where Jesus turned and he said, that woman has given more than anyone else. And it was just pennies. Why? Because her motive and her heart and her attitude was right. You see, the Pharisees would stand there in the the temple court around the big big, uh, sister, uh, the big, somebody help me with the name there. I'm just going to call them pots with the big pots and and they'd stand there and make a big show out of the gift that they were giving. But when the widow drops her pennies in there, Jesus says she gave more than all of them. Why? Because she did it with the right heart and the right motive. And so we need to continually really examine our hearts and our lives and especially our service. Why are we doing the things we do? Why are we loving the unlovable? Is it so that we can get something in return? Or is it that we're doing the right thing and we're loving passionately other people because that's what Jesus calls us to do, regardless of how hard they are to love? You got anybody in your life that's hard to love? You might be the one that's hard to love in somebody else's life. We have to recognize that these right motives can't be ginned up on our own. You see, it's the Spirit of God that works in our heart that conforms us to the likeness of Christ, to the Holy Spirit and the Word of God where He changes us. And those things that we catch ourselves doing in wrong motive, we say, God, change my heart so that my motives are right in this and everything that I do is pure. Can I tell you this, that it is so easy for us to fall into the trap of pride for doing what we do. You want me to tell you how we can determine sometimes within the body of Christ whether the good thing is done with the wrong motive? Fire a volunteer. You, you understand what I'm saying? Fire a volunteer. In other words, somebody that's serving an area, all of a sudden we say, you know what, we, 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 we don't want you to serve in that area and I can guarantee you you'll find out why they were doing it in the first place. Can I get an amen to that? You see, we, if we're not careful, all of our Christ life, all of our church life can be all for us and not for him. And I tell you, there's no power in that. There's no freshness in that. And there's no outpouring of the Holy Spirit in that. So we see the reason this is because he did what was right in the eyes of God. Now, let's look at what he did. Verse 3. 
He says, he took away the foreign altars and the high places and broke down the pillars and cut down the ashram. These were poles, kind of like a totem pole, if you will, that they erected to worship the idols and other false gods. And he commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, and to keep the law and the commandment. And so what we find Asa doing where all of his, his father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather, even Solomon, who had introduced these idols and this idolatrous worship into the land where he had mar- married foreign wives and brought with them their gods for these three generations preceding him, they had erected all of these idols in these high places where, where they had worshipped these false gods when Israel knew the true God. And yet they worshiped and went after these. And so Asa goes throughout all of the land and he tears down all of these traditional markers that were idolatrous things that were worshiping those rather than the true God. Here's an interesting thing. Notice that that he just didn't put them away. Notice that he didn't just cover them up because they were artifacts that were there. But he tears them down. And as I thought about this and the application in your life and in my life, that every single one of us, before we came to know Christ, we had some idol erected in our heart. Someone said once that man's heart is a perpetual factory of idols. That, that man is always looking for other things to worship rather than the true God. And can I tell you, it's idolatrous to worship the Georgia Bulldogs. Can I get an amen to that? I'm meddling now, aren't I? He he didn't just put them away, but, but he tore them down. I was talking with somebody about this the other day, a couple of weeks ago maybe, that, that when I came to Christ, I, I had a lot of stuff in my life. I still got stuff in my life. Anybody with me on that? But there were some things that as I came into relationship with Christ, and it wasn't that somebody told me that I needed to put these things away in my life, but I recognized through the Word of God and the Holy Spirit that I was worshiping these things rather than the Lord Jesus Christ. And I had to put some of those things away, not just put them in a closet so I could come back later and play with them, but I had to cut them out of my life. And there were people I had to cut out of my life as well. You see, sometimes if we're not careful, we, we can have the idea that we're just going to set these things aside and, and, and maybe when it's a bad day or, or, or maybe when we want to feel good, we, we go back and we get that little thing and, and we massage it. But he says, no, we've got to tear those things down in our lives. And sometimes, let me speak to those who are unmarried, sometimes it has to be one that you just think is the hottest ticket on the face of the earth. But if they are not sold out to Jesus and you are, I can promise you this, they will win out influence in your life. I know. You never met anybody like that before. I know they make you feel good. I know they're popular. I know all of this other stuff. But I'm telling you, they will drag you 
down and away from Christ. And so whatever it might be in your life, whatever it might be in my life, I've got to tear these things down. I'm not just going to cover them up, man. I've got to get rid of them. The other thing I notice about Asa in this story is that he did not follow suit and step with his father, his grandfather, and his great-grandfather. You see, oftentimes we talk about this generational curse. You're familiar with that. That the sins of the father are born to the children. And sometimes we can allow that to be a crutch in our lives, and sometimes we can allow that to be an excuse where God wants to break that, and it can be broken with you, and it starts today. You know, we have the saying, the acorn doesn't fall too far from the tree. Now, that can be in good things and it can be bad things. But if we rely on the excuse that that's just the way my mama was and that's just the way my daddy was, then we are not ready to do business with God and let him tear those things down in our lives. Let me speak to dads in particular for just a moment. Guys, do you realize that, that as we lead our homes and as we lead our families, we are setting up the next generation to follow suit and have a propensity towards those things that, that, that are not right in our lives. And we've got to tear those things down. When we come to Christ, it's not that Jesus just cleans us up. Listen, he doesn't want to just clean us up. He wants to radically transform and change our lives. Paul says, behold, all things have become new. That old man, that old stuff is gone, and he desires to remake us in the image and the likeness of Christ. Now, it doesn't happen by osmosis. There is a responsibility on our part, and that responsibility is to be obedient to the Word of God, to walk in step with the Holy Spirit, and put some skin in the game. Amen? It's not going to happen if we live the Christian life in a passivity kind of way. That verse again, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You are a new creation in Christ. There's a proverb that went around in, in Ezekiel's day in, in Israel. And the proverb goes, goes something like this, if I can read this to you. If you want to flip in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me and said, what do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? That quote, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. Then he goes on in verse 9 to say, the one who walks in my statues and keeps my rules by acting faithfully, he is righteous. And what I want to bottom line say in this, Asa didn't follow the path of the wicked, evil lineage of his own family, but he recognized at this point, at this time, that thing is broken. And we have to recognize, if you're here this morning, 
You're watching online today, and you realize that there's, there's something besetting that it's one generation to the next. You don't have to live in that by the power of the blood of Christ that can be broken today and eradicated and passed away. Can anybody say amen to that? Look at verse 4. It's not only about getting ready, uh, getting rid of those things, but it's walking in obedience to his commands. Look again what he says in verse 4. And to keep the law and the commandment. To keep the law and the commandment. In other words, it's not one thing just to get rid of that stuff, to tear down those idols, but it's to walk in keeping in step with what God has proposed or given to us in his word that we're to be obedient to. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, I love this, where Paul says, walk in the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. One of my favorite verses. But you know, for, for a long time in my Christian life, I kind of got that backwards. I saw that as two commands in that verse. But can I tell you there's only one command in that verse? And the command that he gives to us is we walk in the Spirit. If we walk in the Spirit, we'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. For a very long time in my Christian life, all I concentrated on was trying not to walk in the flesh. I, I, I can't do this. I can't do that. I've I, I got to have this list of things that I've got to do and this, and this whole checklist. Can I tell you that it's a lot easier to live the Christian life by a list than it is to live it by faith and step with the Holy Spirit of God? Give me a list. I, I, can, I can check off the list. Some of us have been in church for 60, 70 years, and we're still living by a list. Why? It's a lot easier. It's a little bit more challenging and difficult to live by the Spirit of God. And so Paul puts it very simply here, that if we live by the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And somebody asks, well, how do we do that? How do we live by the Spirit? And the simplest answer I can give is that the Holy Spirit indwells every heart of the believer, and the Holy Spirit is always there ringing true in our heart and our spirit to call us to live with Him. If you're born again, you have the Spirit of God. You don't have part of the Holy Spirit. You have all of the Holy Spirit. You see, it's not a question of whether or not you and I have received all or the fullness of the Holy Spirit. The question is, how much of the Holy Spirit has me? Does that make sense? And so he says that we're not to gratify the flesh, but to live according to the Spirit. Now, I've got to move on. Look in verse 6. He built fortified cities in Judah for the land had rest. He had no war in those years, for the Lord gave him peace. And he said to Judah, let us build these cities and surround them with walls and towers, gates and bars. The land is still ours because we have sought the Lord. We have sought him and he has given us peace on every side. The promise there for you and I is that as we are seeking the Lord, as we're walking, we will have peace with him. Jesus said, my peace I give unto you, not as the world gives, but my peace I give. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
You see, when we're walking in step with the Spirit, when, when those things are happening, man, there's peace and there's rest in our lives. And can I tell you something? I have to renew that every single day of my life. And so do you. It's not a once-in-a-lifetime thing. It's, it's a daily thing. Foot, for me, it's a minute-by-minute thing. Because my flesh loves to satisfy itself. Anybody else with me on that? Am I just preaching to me today? When he's our focus, when he is in the right place in our hearts, there's peace on every side. Doesn't mean that there won't be challenges, and we're going to see that in just a minute. But there's peace there. Verse 7, and he said to Judah, let us build these cities and surround them with walls and towers and gates and bars. The land is still ours because we have sought the Lord our God. We have sought him, and he has given us peace on every side. So they built and prospered, and Asa had an army of 300,000 from Judah, armed with large shields and spears, and 280,000 men from Benjamin that carried shields and drew bows. All these were mighty men of valor. What I want us to notice in this brief portion of this passage is that while there was peace in the land, he didn't sit back idle. Now, we can have a tendency in our Christian life when everything's going fine just to sit back idle. But notice what he did. He knew that there was coming a day when there would be those enemies that would come against him. And can I tell you this? In our lives, if, if we're on that place where, you know, everything's just fine with Jesus right now, it's a dangerous thing to sit back and just, Enjoy that moment without preparation because knowing that there is going to be an attack that comes the following day. You see, we have to be on guard, and that's what he did. Because we notice in verse 7, Zira the Ethiopian came out against them and an army of a million men and 300 chariots, chariot, chariots, and came as far as Marasha. And Asa went out to meet him, and they drew up their lines of battle in the valley of Zipporah and Marsha. And Asa cried to the Lord, O Lord, there is none like you to help. Between the mighty and the weak, help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you, and in your name we have come against this multitude. O Lord, you are God. First thing I want us to notice about this is that this army didn't come against Asa and the kingdom of Judah because they had done wrong. Sometimes the battles that you and I face have, have nothing to do with our conduct. Sometimes God's allow, allowing those so that we might depend more on him and be strengthened in him and watch him do battle for us. Notice the odds that are here, two to one. Asa has 580,000, and you look out, the Ethiopians are coming with a million men and 300 chariots. Can I tell you that when we're in God's plan, in God's will, in God's favor, when we're in, in, in God's will, odds don't matter. 
I find myself placing limitations on God and his ability. You see, sometimes I impose my human limitations on God and fail to realize that, you know what, this thing is nothing for God. I mean, with the spoken word, he created the universe and all the the stars were scattered there. And Asa looks out with his 580,000 men, and I wonder how many of them had already run when they saw a million-man army coming after him. And this is what he does. He cried out to the Lord, his God. Not me, man. I try to figure out how I can fix it. I try to figure out how I can make it. I go to sources other than God oftentimes to try to fix the problem rather than first going to God and saying, God, I can't do anything unless you do it. And so he cries out to God in this verse and he says, oh Lord, there is none like you. Notice what he recognizes that there is no other like the Lord God. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you. I recognize how much in my life I rely on me, myself, and I rather than relying on God. Do you ever get the feeling that sometimes you you get a little bit too big for your Christian britches? I do. might even laugh at somebody that puts on Facebook, they prayed and asked God for a parking place, and voila, there was a parking place. I realize that's an arrogant thing for me to laugh at. You see, there's nothing, nothing in our lives that we don't need to depend and trust in Him for. We rely on you. And in your name, we have come against this multitude, O Lord. You are our God. Let not men prevail against us. So, verse 12, the Lord defeated the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. I don't know what it is you might be facing today. Whatever it is, number one, it's not your problem. It's his. Can I say that again? It's not your problem. It's his. You see, where you and I are incapable of dealing with it, you and I are incapable of solving it. You and I are incapable of figuring it all out, but that's nothing for God. I mean, I'm sure God didn't turn to Asa and say, Asa, what are we going to do? They got a million men. They relied on God, and the victory was his. Now, let me throw this caveat out there. The results may not always be the results that we expect or the results that we want. But we've got to trust God, that God is a loving God. God has a purpose that's far beyond our purpose. God wants to be glorified in and through your life in ways that we can never imagine.
that he wants to glorify himself. And we walk through it in trust and in confidence that we don't know how the result is going to be, but we do know this. We know that God is a good, loving God Almighty. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for listening to audio from First Baptist Church of Conyers, located in Conyers, Georgia. For more information about First Baptist Conyers, please visit us online at firstconyers.com.